Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Olson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. Hey, everybody, we're back, and Dave's not with me today. I've got my buddy Rich with me today. Welcome to the podcast, Rich. Thanks, Trigby. Great to be here. We are recording this uh, the first week in January. So how was your Christmas? What was your uh, what was your favorite gift? Uh, it was fantastic. I got a chef's knife, uh, which I've been wanting for uh, quite a while. So it's Japanese made, uh, just cuts through everything. It's, it's a lot of fun to play with. How about you? My favorite gift that I gave is I gave my kid, who was nine years old, a VR headset. And he is one of the games that he just absolutely loves is this game where you have lightsabers in your hands and then cubes are fired at you to the beat of popular music. Fun. As you're listening to it, you have to cut the cubes with the lightsabers depending on whether or not there's an arrow. So if there's a down arrow, you have to cut down with your hands and the right color lightsaber. And I played this and I got immediately addicted. It's a game called Beat Saber and you can get expansion packs. And one of the expansion packs that I got was the the Queen queen expansion pack so my son for the last two weeks has been working through queen's back catalog nice good education and and thinking it's fantastic so our our guest today gavin stone wrote a book called how to tell if people are lying to you how to tell if someone is lying i should say that i get the title right but gavin is a a security and intelligence covert specialist he has 20 years of applied experience globally employed by government organizations such as the british ministry of defense his specialty is human intel, which in his, he is adept at the full required spectrum of tradecraft skills. We're going to get into what exactly that means. Of note is his uh, expertise in surveillance and anti-surveillance, together with time-sensitive human analysis and high-risk dynamic situations. Stone knows how to accurately watch people from afar or gain insight from a breath away. And when the latter is needed, he can employ proprietary and exceptional skills in elicitation, deception, detection, influence, persuasion, and damage mitigation. Does any of this apply to you and your job in sales at all? Just just a little bit. You know, I've never been lied to in a sales position before. Yeah, never. Ne- never. He is ranked number 28 in the world as a body language expert by Global Guru's Top 30. His uh, book is called How to Tell if Someone is Lying, and he has also written a new fiction novel called The Unforgiven Spy, available on Amazon and all major outlets. Welcome, Gavin. Hello, thank you for having me. I noticed when you were talking there for the people who can't see, obviously, because it's audible. Rich, when you were caught, when you were calling that off, he had a little twitch on the side of his mouth, and it was just a momentary smile of contempt, of, as if to say, "I can do that." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> Gavin obviously lives in the UK, so this is my awkward way of transitioning and saying, "Gavin," because my son will ask me later, "What is your favorite Queen song?" My favorite Queen song, probably "Hammer to Fall." Oh, Are you familiar with great. that one? I am familiar with that. Yes. Yeah, that, yes. I would say that's uh, probably one of my favorites. Rich, Rich, Rich how about you? Uh, just, we will we will rock you. I mean, <laughs> classic. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a classic. It's an Amer- American, American arena rock one. So I, I guess my second follow-up question is, uh, given your background, given that you, you're British and that you worked in the spy trade, are, are you James Bond? I know you're retired, so does that make you Pierce Brosnan? No, I wish. Yeah, and, and of course, Pierce Brosnan doesn't quite have the good looks that I have, but uh, you know, can't can't have everything there. But uh, no, it's me. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're all in the same boat here. So, but yeah, it's um, it's something that, that Hollywood does kind of glorify 
the the champagne and suit side of it. How did you get into the intelligence craft? I actually got into it in a completely different way to where it normally is done. So normally it's it's you have like what they call spotters on the college campus and they'll look out for students that really shine. Uh, and these spotters will have a, a, a contact at MI6 and they will say, look, I've got someone here who kind of ticks the boxes who's really worthwhile. Me, on the other hand, I had a knock on the door one day and it was a friend of mine who said, look, I need some help with something. And I said, sure, what do you want? And we we ended up tracking a guy down and I, I, I inadvertently got into something called process serving. I don't know whether you're familiar with it, but we have basically... I finding people with, with uh, outstanding warrants or court summons and that kind of thing, or, or you have to issue them, personally serve them, sometimes called a per-serve, with this uh, court summons. And I was right at the very bottom, the bread and butter stuff, and I just kind of ended up working my way up from there where I went on to private investigations and then uh, government departments were hiring me for fraudulent things and then just built up through the government departments until I eventually got into the intelligence side of things. So if you work in intelligence, what does that really mean? Ooh, okay. So okay, so your your intelligence officers, as they were, have you got MI6, MI5, that kind of thing, your intelligence officers, even CIA case officers, the way I like to put it is we're making friends in the most dangerous of circumstances. And what we're going to do, we're going to go over to a foreign country usually. We're going to find somebody that has access to secrets, to governmental secrets that we want. And we are literally going to become, we're going to in, inject ourselves into that person's life. And we're going to become, build such a relationship in a very short space of time that it, it you know, kind of creates a bond that, that allows them to, you to pitch them and say, look, can you help us out? What are some of the trainings that you go that you go through in order to learn how to do that? So uh, we have to do a lot of like uh, human rapport building and and kind of being able to profile people reasonably quickly, get used to what makes them tick and what motivates them, and then that's built up from there to kind of the the elicitation side of it, which I know you you definitely want to have a little chat about in a short while. This is all the 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 classroom stuff, as it were. And then you've got the other side of it where you've got all the, the shooting and the lockpicking and the, and the other bits and pieces. But you're relying more on the, on the human element than what you are on any of the practical stuff. I know Rich is really re- wanting to talk about elicitation, but before that, I want to talk a little bit about Hollywood. So you actually worked in human intelligence. Are there spy movies that are realistic? <laughs> um, so, so some of them have like genuine tradecraft in, but I, I mean, obviously it's all for entertainment. So... Um, the right. truth of the matter is, if you're getting chased through Moscow and there's explosions going off and gunfights and whatever else, then you're doing your job very, very wrong and you'll probably never work in the industry again. I mean, yes, every intelligence officer is trained to be able to do that because you are effectively in a hostile country doing an illegal act of espionage. Uh, so therefore, you might need to use those skills to be able to get out, uh, get an exfil and, and, and get home safely. So we do have that kind of training. But like I say, if you are using it, then, then things have gone really, really south. But the, on the on the flip side of that, you look at the, the tradecraft in certain things, like probably one of the best ones was a series called Burn Notice. Are, are you familiar with Burn Notice? Yeah, I, I love Burn Notice. Yeah, that was great. In fact, they had a guy come in from CIA to to actually teach some of the tradecraft. Uh, and so some of the tradecraft in that is genuine tradecraft. And a lot of the time, it's just silly little things like eating when you're nervous to calm yourself down and, and, and daft things like that. So that is good. But again, I think it got to about season three or four, and they started running out of things to use, and explosions started happening everywhere. But you've got the whole, again, it's poetic license. It is 
there's a lot of drama and uh, because that's what it's there for. It's there for entertainment. Nobody in intelligence has 24-7 of gunshots, explosions, car chases, women, yacht races, falling off cliffs. You, you, you wouldn't last a week. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and uh, he had that great God's treasure that kept giving completely mm. trashed over every single week. It's yeah, just, yeah the, the most inconspicuous character. car in Florida. <laughs> the only other person that I've known who's worked in human intelligence worked in the CIA, and he is... The mo- if you look at him, he is the most vanilla person you'd ever see. You wouldn't look at him twice. And years ago, I used to play Risk with him and two of his buddies from work. And it was awful because they would talk about things in the general sense. Like, hey, do you remember what happened on Wednesday? And then they'd look <laughs> at me and I'd be like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> one time he called me and it was one of those overseas echo things where you could see here it was connecting. And he called and he's like, hey, hey, how are you? I'm good, man. How are how are you? He's like, oh, I'm good. Can you do me a quick favor? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Can you can you call my wife? Tell her I'll be home Thursday. Hmm. Aren't you home now? Well, not not really. Did you, could you just do that one thing for me? Did, oh oh okay oh, oh, okay yeah all right great thanks and he hung up and we've never <laughs> spoken about it. But he was clearly not at home and he clearly was not in a position to talk to his wife. And I, I still to this day wonder what he really does. But he'll, if you ask him, he'll say he works for the State Department. So, yeah, the purpose of this uh, this podcast, Kevin, is we're trying to help small business owners get better at their jobs. And I know one of the things that I'm reasonably good at, I think Rich is, is too, but we really wanted to go to school on your ability to learn and, and garner things based on body language. Because mm-hmm. both Rich and I, our day jobs are in selling, and we, I think, are intimately familiar with knowing that what people say isn't nearly as important as how they say it. Would you agree with that, Rich? Absolutely. So, elicitation is fun to say, but I've never heard it in a sentence before. Oh, okay. Can you tell tell me what it is? Yeah. So, elicitation is basically the art of obtaining information from somebody without necessarily asking a question in a unassuming way so when it comes to questions people are naturally guarded if you go into kind of interrogation remote and i'm kind of saying to you hey rich where did you grow where did you go to school where you know all of a sudden you know and people do the same kind of mistake when they go on dates that they, they go on dates and they ask questions whereas if you were to use elicitation it kind of keeps conversation flowing without it feeling like it's in interrogative so what you're doing you're making what's called provocative statements and it's a way to get somebody talking where you can say one single sentence, one statement, and that will then get them to kind of give you more information. It will cut the conversation from being down like a 50-50 to you're giving 10%, they're giving 90 So, for example, I could turn around to you and I could say, hey, that football shirt you got in the background, I bet that's got a story behind it. So, okay. okay. From that, you will then more than likely start saying, oh, yeah, I, you know, I had this gifted to me and, and you, you know, you, you'll tell me the story behind it, you know. So, so it's something that rather than me asking a question, say, hey, that football shirt, um, where did you get that from? You can cut that off very quickly with a kind of, oh, it was a gift from a friend. And that's it. The conversation's over and killed. Whereas if I, if I do it in a more provocative way and, and make it as a statement rather than a question, you're going to respond and you're not going to feel like it's an interrogation. Is that what you call open-ended statements? Pretty much, yeah. So with, with open-ended questions, you're trying to avoid the yes and no. So you, you can say to somebody, um, did you stay at home Tuesday night? You can just say yes. 
and that's it. Your conversation's over, and you're 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 at a point where you're like, yeah, you know, that that that's dead, and you've got to move to the next question and the next question. Whereas if you were to use an open ended statement, say, so hey, what were you up to on Tuesday? They can't give a yes or no. They've got to kind of tell you what they were up to on Tuesday, and and that kind of pushes the idea of them being more more than a one word answer, as it were. That was something I I learned early on in my my sales training is especially when you're calling people cold on the phone is mm -hmm. most salespeople will ask a question that then the people can give an, give, give the wrong answer to. So <laughs> yeah, Gavin, how are you today? Well, your answer is going to be uh, shitty. You're bothering me. Stop. <laughs> and, or I'm in a meeting. Call me later. Click. So what I counsel people to do is say, give them an affirmation to so say, Hey, thanks for picking up the phone. Mm, I like that. I I actually had I give some sales training to a, a call center a while ago, and they'd all got these scripts, and and they called me and they said, "Will you have a look at the scripts for me?" And uh, you know, what should we do with them? I said, "The first thing you want to do with them is throw them out." I said, "There's nothing yes. worse than somebody relying on a script that they're going to read word for word." I said, "It doesn't sound human. It sounds monotone. It, it you know, there's no you're not building any relational rapport by doing that." And, you know, they pick up the phone and they'll turn around and say, hi, it's David calling from XYZ company. And you've lost them. You've lost the customer because at that point, they're already thinking, how do I get this person off the phone? So if you call them up and you you go for a completely different approach, and I'll tell you the one I taught them, I rang a company uh, and some some lady answered the phone, uh, you know, XYZ company, how can I help? I said, hi, can you do me a favor? I said, we're all having a great big bet here in the office, whether Terminator 1 or Terminator 2 was the best film. And, you know, so far it's a 50-50 vote. You're going to make the difference. Which one would it be? Which one would you say would? And she's like, oh, definitely Terminator 2. I said, I knew it. Brilliant. Thank you. You're on the winning team. You, you know, you, you're one of us and welcome them in and, and kind of, and I said, look, yeah, thanks for that. And, and, and what it did, it built that moment of rapport and it didn't matter what the answer was, whether she'd have said Terminator 1 or Terminator 2, she was still, it was still the right answer. She was still on the winning team, building that connection. And what it does, it kind of throws them for a second because they're used to answering the phone saying, how can I help you? And someone says, yes, this is my problem or this is what I'm trying to sell you. Or, and it breaks that usual pattern, that cycle that she's used to or he's used to. And what it does, it, it, it kind of takes them out of work and away from reality for a moment. And then when you've got that kind of bond and connection there with them, you can build on it and then turn around and say, look, you know, I'm, uh, I've got a couple of things I'd like to speak to you about if you have a few minutes. And at that point, you've already kind of built a telephone relationship. Does that make sense? Uh, it's it's a genius, and I'm totally going to steal it. And uh, Rich, <laughs> Rich is nodding his head sadly, saying now he's going to probably have to do some of the same. Yeah, and, exactly. and of course, it doesn't have to be Terminator One or Terminator Two. It can be any number of things. It can be pineapple on pizza. It can be uh, you know whether uh, ice cream is better than than uh, chocolate or what, what you know. You, you you as long as you've got two comparisons, and whichever one they pick is obviously the right one. Um, you know, and and it, it, if if it's done right and it's crafted right. Then, uh, then the the whole thing will work a lot better. And again, most importantly, is the delivery. You know, if this is scripted and somebody tries to read it, it won't work. Well, the problem with the scripts, and it kind of gets back to the the idea of elicitation, is scripting is based on telling you what I want you to know. It's not based <laughs> on what I want from you, which is I want you to tell me what the problem is. I want you to tell me what you know, and I want to learn from you. Not I don't want to tell you things. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In, in Cold Read Like a Spy, uh, which I read last night, fantastic. It seems like a lot of spy craft happens in bars or cocktail parties. How much of that is true? 
Um, a good, a good amount is actually. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a bar or a cocktail party. It can be anywhere. I mean, you know, it was done with a, a um, Russian diplomat in London out in the park. Um, a lot of the time, it's actually done on, on the dog walk, um, which you know is going to scare a lot of diplomats now who walk their dog regularly. But it, it creates a talking point. It allows you to so to to infiltrate somebody's life. What you've got to do is you've got to start off by doing a surveillance on them long enough to establish what they call a POL or pattern of life. And then when you know where they're going to be every week at the same time, whether it's walking the dog, whether it's shopping at the supermarket, whatever it is, you can arrange then to be there at the same time. And you, you build up this familiarity and you do what's, what, what's called a smile campaign. And that is to bit by bit be a, a regular thing that they see in their life, whether it's every Saturday at the park, whether it's every day at the coffee shop, you just see them every single day and you smile and you build up that relationship of, of familiarity. And then eventually at some point you can do what's called the bump. And that's when you will go from the transition from just, you know, kind of smile and a wave to, to kind of, Hey, my name's Gavin or whatever the case may be, or whatever your cover name is, um, or they approach you or you give them a reason to approach you. So it is done frequently in public places. So with that in mind, you know, obviously you do get a lot of people who out in restaurants, cocktail bars, parties, that kind of thing. It's the ideal opportunity when their guard is down to kind of uh, take advantage. And I think that sort of transitions into discussion about body language is how can you tell when somebody's ready? Um, the truth, I mean, you, you, you can to a degree, but even, even when you're doing it, you are taking a gamble. Effectively, especially if you're in a foreign country, you are about to ask that person to break the law, risk their life, commit treason, and go through a treacherous act of betrayal to get information for somebody that they hardly know and that you've just met. And if you've done a good enough job of building that relationship up and, and, and kind of making them feel safe and secure, and that's the main thing, the safety uh, aspect of it, making them feel safe, then you know you, you can kind of pitch them. And it, it, it literally is a gamble. You know, we As good as we'd like to all be, profiling and getting everybody's right and learning everything about everybody and saying, yep, this is the highest percent chance. There's always that very minor percentage that they're going to, no, not for me. So, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's usually an educated guess, but usually goes well. We kind of skipped over the, the whole bit about profiling. What are some ways in which small business owners can use to, to profile their prospects? What, is, what are sort of the top five things that people need to be considering when they're dealing with somebody new? Oh, okay. So ooh, th this is, um, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, what we've got with this is the psychology behind the person and, and to, to understand people and profiling them and to put anybody into a box is really, really difficult. So it, it's just about, so you have to do something called red cell. Uh, which is a, another CIA term where their job is to be the enemy and to say, right, if we, you know, so Red Cell at CIA turn around and say, right, if we were Russia or we were China and we were going to attack America, how would we do it? What would we do? So they think from the enemy's position and then that, that's how they go about their, their building their attack. And then when they know how they would attack, they can then build on the defenses around it. So you've got to kind of do a very similar thing with who you're talking to. You've got to red cell that person and kind of say, right, is this a single man? Is this a, a family with seven kids and a dog? Who, who am I selling to? So you've got to kind of put yourself in their position and, and try and figure out what they've been through. And it's, it's really difficult. I'm going to plug a friend, Chase Hughes, who does a, um, a book called 6MX. And it's one of the best profiling books I've ever read. It can be, it's 6MX stands for 6 Minute X-Ray, and it allows you to profile 
pretty much anybody in the world in six minutes or less. And you can get a, an idea of their personality type. And once you've got that, once you know what personality type they are, whether they're an intelligence personality, whether they're a strength personality, whether they're a victim personality, you can then know who you're selling to uh, and have the advantage. That's amazing. Let's uh, take a quick break because I know uh, I, I want to get back to the body language discussion. I, for sure. instance, know that Rich is adding the card on Amazon right now. Need me to share my screen? <laughs> Today's episode of Dial It In is brought to you by BusyWeb, your partner in driving growth for business service and manufacturing businesses online. Are you a business service or manufacturing business eager to expand your online presence, generate leads, and boost revenue? BusyWeb has what you need. At BusyWeb, we specialize in helping businesses like yours with CRM, marketing, advertising, and website solutions. As experts in HubSpot, Google, social media, and email, we offer full-service digital marketing tailored to your unique needs. Our mission is to drive leads to your business and empower you to convert those leads effectively through smart follow-up strategies. Visit our website at busyweb.com. That's B-I-Z-Z-Y-W-E-B.com. Or give us a call at 612-424-9990 to start a conversation. As a special offer for our Dial It In listeners, we're offering a free download of our newest ebook, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About HubSpot. With this free download, we'll share with you how to grow your business with an all-in-one sales, marketing, website, customer service, and CRM powerhouse. Explore the power of HubSpot to decide if it's right for your growth plans. This offer is exclusively for Dial It In listeners. Don't miss out. Visit busyweb.com pod for more. All right, we're back. One of the things that uh, is a frustration for me, Gavin, is I think, and I think for salespeople on the whole, is they're really good one-on-one -on -one when mm -hmm. they meet with people. But with the, the pandemic, we all not be so much in person, and we now we're doing a lot of virtual selling. So, which is why, to me, there are some things that are patently obvious when, when you're dealing with people on an online front, when it comes to body language, like, a lot of times you'll see people with glasses and you can see that they're clearly looking at their email because the, the, the screen's reflecting in their glasses. So you know you've lost them. But how has that changed the move to online? Has that changed intelligence gathering? And then uh, I want to ask some questions about like, what can you learn virtually from people? So virtually, I, I tend to, to look at like the whole sales process virtually. It's a lot more difficult with when you're dealing with a screen than when you're dealing one-to-one -one because you you only have that two-dimensional image to go on. So it cuts everything down and, and it, it, it really limits what you can do. On the flip side of that, there are some advantages that you've got, whereas anybody who's ever written anything called sales copy will know about something called open loops. If you're selling online, this is absolutely perfect. And what they'll generally tend to do is say, right, in a moment, I'm going to show you how to pick any lock in the world using just a couple of paper clips. But before we get to that, I'm going to speak about X, Y, and Z. And then what they'll do, they've got someone's attention for something that they really want. I want to know how to pick any look in the world with a couple of paper clips. So you've got their attention and that open loop is relying on, on the human need for closure. The human need for closure is so, so inherently strong that if you, if you were to text any of your family right now with, hey, you'll never guess what just happened, your phone will blow up. 
<laughs> um, my wife is one of the worlds for it. If, if I were to turn around to my wife and say, oh, you never guess what? And she goes, what? And I go, hey, no, it doesn't matter. She goes, no, no, you've got to tell me. You've got to tell me. Um, so so this human lead for, for, for closure is extremely strong. So you can use it to your advantage. So what you do is you open the loop. You tell, tell your audience you're going to come back to that in a moment. First, you're going to tell them about whatever it is that you, you want to. And then before you close that loop, you open a second loop. And you close the first one. And, and what you've done is you've, you've created another thing for kind of say, so right now, I'm about to show you how to pick the lock with two paper clips. And before I do that, I'm going to teach you in a few minutes also how to get into your bank account and add an extra zero to the end. So I'll come to that in five minutes. Now let's get on with the packet paper clips. So you teach them the paper clips bit. You go to the next bit of the meeting, and all the time you've still got their attention because they're going, I, I want to pay attention to all of this because I want to know how that extra zero is going on my bank account. So this is how you. So you're constantly keeping that leapfrog of open loops going on, and that will keep their attention to the end. And as long as you don't open too many loops, then you know it should it should always be you know one open, the second one open as you close the first one, and and keep that action going and as long as you do that that generally tends to keep people's attention span because they want the answer to that question so they'll they'll keep listening and keep paying attention one of the things i was curious about especially in the the digital screen to screen how do you tell when people are lying to you over a webcam oh so what you're looking for is change um so you look you're looking for something different you you want to baseline the person as fast as you can you can usually do it within a few minutes if your camera is good enough and you can see their eyes then you've got something called eye accessing cues so if i were to turn around to you and say rich what color were the walls in your elementary school classroom taupe so yeah so you've just gone up and left and then up and right before you've answered so you've gone to two places for your memory recall now what i've done is i've just baselined you so i now know where you're going to go to give a truthful answer that's coming back from your memory recall now if i turn around to you and say rich I want you to picture a purple unicorn that can breathe flames that's got big feathered wings. And I'm going to watch where your eyes go over to the right and then over to the left. So again, that's where your creative memory is. Okay. So that's going to allow me then to say, right, he's now creating something because other than probably, I don't think there's probably ever been a time in your life where you've had to create that that image in your mind. That was, that was rather unique, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, so you need something pretty unique uh, or something you know that they're going to be either, you know, deceptive about to, to, or, or have to create uh, to be able to kind of um, gauge. And it could be anything. Imagine what it's like being married to X or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and then once you've got that creative memory, you then know if you ask them a question, if I go back to you and say, so, you know, Rich, tell me about this, and you, your eyes go up and left, up and right, I know that you're bringing something back from your memory. Whereas if, if they do what they did when I asked you to, to uh, think of a purple, whatever it was, uh, then, uh, then then I know purple that Purple unicorn created. that uh, blew, blew fire out of its butt, I think it was. I'm glad you remember. <laughs> I can't even remember myself what it was. Um, but yeah, you know, to get the same eye actions, then that basically is letting me know that you're creating something, you're making something up more so than, than you know, recalling it from your memory. So the eye accessing cue side of it is absolutely brilliant. The Pentagon did spend a hell of a lot of time and money disproving it. And the reason it didn't work for the Pentagon, they were testing it on soldiers. And they were asking standard questions that soldiers don't really need to think about because they've been drilled that many times. This is here, this is there, this is how we do that. They don't need to think about it. And, and the other side of it was they wanted a clear map. They wanted, you know, you always go up and right when you're lying and up and left when you're remembering. And it doesn't work. Like it's different for each person. So you have to baseline them each time to know what 
their what is what is standard for them. So so that was why it didn't work, and that was why it's been kind of dismissed a lot over the years and had a lot of bad press. But if it's done properly and you do make your own map for each person, it's absolutely brilliant for getting uh, an idea as to whether somebody's uh, been truthful or not. So that's that's your kind of eye access in cues. And then, like I said, the, the main thing is you're looking for change. You know, if you were to say to me, uh, Gavin, have you worked in intelligence? And I go, yeah. And you go, you worked in security? I go, yeah. And you go, have you worked in hot air balloon sales? And I go, mm, yeah. <laughs> then there's a difference. My pitch has changed. My body language has changed. My tone has changed. Yeah, my answer's changed. You're looking for that different response. And generally, if you can, kind of clusters of three or more. One singular change might just be coincidental. You know, if they're scratching an itch and you think, oh, he covered his mouth, is that a, is that a tell? But if they're scratching an itch while they give a different tone, a different pitch change, a different speed, a different answer, then you're looking more along the lines of, okay, there's a cluster of tells now, and those are more indicators of deception. How much of an indicator is deception? We, Rich and I work and live in, I would say, is probably the passive-aggressive capital of the world, where people are just politely trying to get you out. Uh, in, in scenarios as opposed to let you down or tell you the truth, which is, no, I don't want to buy from you. I, you know, please go away. So they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, send me a proposal or I'll think about it or things like that. If, we, if we're feathering in a certain amount of passive aggressiveness, does that, does the body language reveal more than what people are saying? Yeah, it can do. You've got to look like the whole conversation, and this is what goes back to baseline, and especially if you're online and you can see them, look at what's normal for them. And if they're normally giving you eye contact the entire time while you're talking uh, and, you know, you turn around and say, right, you know, this, this is my pitch. And they go, yeah, send me an email. And all of a sudden they're not giving you that same eye contact. They're looking away. The change is different. So that, that again, is, is kind of indicating that they're, they're really not that interested. So if I'm in a meeting online uh, and I can tell that I've lost somebody, they're, they're, they're looking up in a way, they're clearly not looking, they're looking over here. They're not even looking at the camera anymore. Ordering the book How on Amazon. I, I'm buying a book on <laughs> buying a book uh, on, on Am, Amazon six MX. Uh, I mean, I'm forgetting to buy, as well as uh, how to tell if somebody's lying to you. What are some strategies that you can um, utilize to get them back? So there's a couple of yeah. I mean, you, uh, there's a couple of things you can do, uh, and, and what I tend to do with with something like this is default to taking the blame. I go, oh, do you know what? I'm really sorry. Do you know what? I, I've had a late night last night, and I'm probably doing a dreadful job of explaining this. Do, do you do you understand what I mean? Does that make sense? And straight away, they've got to start thinking about everything that you've just said. They've got to come back to you. And go, uh, yeah, yeah, it does. You know, you've you've moved the blame away from you from from them. You know, because you've they've wandered off in their own little world uh, and and taken it onto yourself, and you've got their attention back. And as soon as you've got their attention back, you can then kind of pick up where you left off the the other way is, is again to ask them how that how it could be improved so ask them how they would have done it uh, and and get their opinion people love to give their own opinion on something and uh, how many how many times have people you know if if i was running the country or running the world this is how how things would be everybody's got a uh, their own unique idea of how much better things will be done if they were doing it one of the things that rich and i really want to get back to in 2024 is actually meeting people in person from a elementary level what are some basic body movements that people make then what is when what do they mean when when people do that like for instance i know that i've got my arms crossed right now which usually means that i'm i'm disengaged it doesn't in this case because i'm my hands are cold but <laughs> yeah. what are some things that people who aren't in the intelligence community don't have 
the the level of knowledge that Rich and I do about what those kind of things means. What are some things that people can look out for? Certainly. So I, I like the fact that you mentioned that you got your arms folded because that, that, that happens a lot. People say, oh, does that mean somebody's being defensive? And this is the exact reason why uh, there is no body language dictionary. There's no direct translation of, you know, if he puts his hands here and here, it means X. The The truth of the matter is there's so many different reasons you can fold your arms. It, because, it could be because you've been defensive. It could be because you're bored. It could be because your hands are cold. It could be for any number of things. So what you have to do, like I say, is look for what's normal for that person. So if they don't normally fold their arms, and all of a sudden they do when they're answering a question, that's when you're going to say, okay, was that something I said or was it because it's cold? Was it because of the circumstances? But to to answer your question about the, the default, there are a few things that you can look for, especially in sales. Um, one of the most important ones is if anybody puts something in their mouth, if they've got a pen there, put it in their mouth while they're, while they're you know thinking about signing the line, or even if it's a finger, hair in their mouth, if they get their ponytail from around the back of their head and they're, they're putting it in their mouth, anything along those lines, that's a need for reassurance. So the minute you see that, anything going in the mouth, um, I'm going to keep it clean, uh, <laughs> anything going in the mouth, um, in, the it, it, yeah. in the workplace setting, um, is, a, is a need for reassurance. There's some doubt somewhere niggling in the mind. And, and whether this dates back to um, as a baby for feeding and, and, and whether it's got anything to do with, like, you know, when you give a kid a pacifier, it kind of makes them feel better. As, as it says in the name, um, pacifier, you know, whether it relates back to that and, and something to do with the psychology of feeding as a baby as a form of reassurance, I don't, I don't know. Um, that's just a, a guess. But the uh, that that's a, a universal for pretty much everybody. So not not to be confused with when flirting's going on. So yeah, what uh, what are some other common uh, ones that people can learn from? So common ones, you're generally looking for, if if people are open, if if they've got a nice open posture, um, then then generally that means they're comfortable and relaxed. If they have a closed posture, you know, if they are kind of crossing their arms or turning away from you, that kind of thing, uh, then then that is more of an area of concern. Not always, like I say, it could be anything to do with temperature and whatever else. So you do have to use a little bit of discretion on on where you're drawing your conclusions from. But if you watch for the feet, then you, they will tell you more than anything. Because if you're standing, yeah, if, if you so TSA agents are actually trained to look when you go up to the desk with your passport and and they, they they're looking at your passport. They'll sometimes lean over the desk to see which way your feet are pointing. And the reason being, if the feet are pointing towards the counter, it's telling them that they're okay. There's nothing to worry about. But if their feet are angled towards the exit while their body is facing the counter, they'll be like, ah, what's going on here? You know, because their, their feet are saying, I want to get out of here, I want to get to the exit, but their body's saying, yeah, oh, just give okay. me so, so yeah, if, if you if, if, if the person's feet are facing one way, but their body's facing the other, or they're, they're not giving you that kind of, and again, this is very, very different for men, so I've got to be a little bit careful here. If you stand face to face with a man, you will, you will watch them turn. They will, they will look kind of angle their bodies. So men generally tend to do that, whereas if you're face-to-face, -face, it's, it's kind of threatening, uh, whereas if you're kind of next to each other or angled slightly, then, then it's, it's, it's less aggressive. So, you know, if your feet are facing forward, then that's great. But if, if the guy's feet are, are pointing away, that generally means because they want to get away. Okay. And so if, if, if Rich and I are, are having a face-to-face -face moment and one of us turns slightly, does that, what does that tell you? 
So if if it's just a turn, it's generally so if if you're face to face, it's like I say, it's very confrontational. Whereas if you just turn slightly, all that says is that you're you're disengaging that confrontation. So you know you're not in an argumentative mode. It's very friendly. But so if you turn away slightly, no problem at all. But if you are kind of you know turned away slightly, but your feet are, are facing a completely different direction, especially you know kind of towards an exit, then that that that's your, your sign that um you know you want to go. You've had enough. <laughs> that's fascinating. I'm going to start looking at people's feet more. Yeah, definitely pay attention, and, and it'll it'll give you a, a more of a sign as to what's going on in their mind. So that's two. Can you give us one more? Uh, yeah, one more. What else have we got? Um, body language wise. So um, yeah. So look for if if you're at let's say a desk or a table, and look for something which is known in the trade as digital flexion. So if their palms are like flat on the table, um, uh, and you ask a particular question. And all of a sudden, their the palms go from being flat to, to kind of their fingers curling in. That's generally a sign of, of an uncomfortable feeling. So the more uncomfortable somebody gets, the more the fingers will curl until that uncomfort goes to a level of aggression to become a fist. So mm. the, the, you know, the more it becomes a fist, the more the levels of discomfort are increasing. And the more relaxed somebody is, the more open somebody is, the more the hands will be with the fingers splayed and, and kind of just kind of chilled out because it, it, it's it's not it's not something you're going to do in a threatening situation is have your fingers flat, whereas obviously in a threatening situation you will have your fist clenched ready to attack. So or at least some people will. Um, so so this is um, so that's how it works. You know, look look, look for what the hands are doing uh, in regards to all the fingers curling in, or or are they nice and you know relaxed in in, in their posture. That's amazing, and I'm sure we can read more about that uh, in your lexicon of books. Tell us about the new book, the fiction book. Okay, so uh, I've written a book called The Unforgiven Spy, which is my debut fiction novel, and it is, it's got more spy tradecraft in it than any other fiction novel I've ever known or read. So there's a lot of like kind of Tom Clancy or, or, or some of the other big names out there who have given little bits of tradecraft. I've crammed as much tradecraft as I could into this, which has hopefully some of it never been out before, deliberately in, in, in an attempt to try and get it banned. Because uh, so, if I get it banned, ah. it'll, go straight, it'll go straight to number one. Um, so, so yeah, that was um, I, I, I was quite lucky, um, and um, it never got banned. Although there is a little secret that I do reveal out there from the um, from the Freemasons, and uh, and again, it was kind of a. A little bit of a thing. I thought hopefully the Freemasons will uh, will create about it, and uh, I thought what a, what a great headline, you know, Freemasons secret society call for Gavin Stone's book to be banned for revealing secrets. Uh, <laughs> yeah, even they've left me alone. Um, so uh, so the publicity um, that that I had planned, um, you know, kind of didn't go exactly the way uh, I wanted it to. But the the book itself will speak for itself, and and a lot of people will hopefully learn some great tricks from it. That's amazing. I don't know a Freemason under the age of 60. Do you, Rich? I don't. My grandfather was a Freemason, and he tried recruiting my uncles and my dad and myself into it. And we were like, I I hang around with a bunch of old people. No. See, maybe I might I might have found my calling there now for uh, recruitment for the Freemasons. There you go. (laughs) Help help teach them to pitch better. I wanted to go over one last thing before we bring off Gavin is one of the books that you have is, is really all about lie detections. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think the book is invaluable. And I think in, just about anybody who deals in a, a person facing job should read it. And it's a quick read too. I think it's good. I, I think it's helpful. I, I found it. Can you give us a couple of ways you can tell if somebody's lying to you? 
Sure. So what I'll do, because the book itself is based on something that a, 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 coin, a term I've coined called CCA, which is Combined Communication and Analysis. So it's a mixture of I've got a background in psychology, uh, body language, statement analysis, that kind of thing. And I've put it all together to be able to help people dece uh, detect deception. So there are several things you can go down. Like, for example, if you ask somebody, hey, have you seen my wallet or have you stolen my wallet? Have you stolen money out the drawer? First of all, listen for the word no. It doesn't matter what comes after the word no as much as listening for the word no. Because if you if you turn around and you say, hey, have you stolen my wallet? And they go, I don't even know where you keep your wallet. They haven't said no. It's not a denial. It's an answer, but it's not a denial. So sometimes people are given an answer that will pacify the person asking without actually denying. And that comes down to uh, humans inherently don't want to lie. We We know it's wrong. We know it's bad. Sometimes we have to, you know, like when your your other half turns around and says, "Does my ass look fat in this?" You, you you've got to tell those little white lies from time to time. You know, the most of the time we you know we don't want to lie, we don't like to, and because of that, we try and avoid lying. And because we you know like kind of avoid lying, we look for little clauses. So that little kind of clause of saying, "Well, I don't even know where you keep your wallet," means that you haven't denied it, you haven't lied, you've just said something that might be true you might not know where you normally keep your wallet it prevents them from saying an out now no so that's more from the statement analysis side of it and i i know enough about body language and how to read people digitally that i can tell that rich is trying to remember where his wallet is right now <laughs> all right there, it is. Perfect. Hey, there you go awesome yeah yeah keep, keep going yeah so you, you you know you look you're looking for the no and if you don't get the no ask yourself why um, so that's the first thing. Look for anything that is completely out of the ordinary. You know, so when I said earlier about we're looking for change, if you ask somebody, you know, a, a question, you know, did you take any money out the tin? And all of a sudden they start screaming and shouting and going wild. Ask yourself, is that is that how they normally react? Because if the answer is no, then why? And a lot of these do seem like common sense things, but sometimes we overlook it because of our natural desire to believe in people. We, we we don't want to admit to ourselves that our friend or colleague might have stolen our, our money or our phone or, or our wallet or whatever. So we, we kind of tend to try to believe in the answer that they give us. So that, 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 that non-definitive answer is telling in some way or another. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and because, because of our, our natural biases, you know, we do buy into stories. And this in itself is something that Lena Sisko, a friend of mine, she turns around and says that uh, truth tellers convey... And liars convince. So truth tellers will convey you what happened because they, they, they've got truth on their side so they don't need to worry about it. They can just say this is what happened or no, I didn't or whatever the case may be. Whereas liars will tell you a story and, and come up with all manner of things. I've heard it time and time again. Do you know what kind of a person I am? Do you know how many years I've worked for this company? Do you know uh, yeah, what, what I do on a Sunday? Do you know? How, or, yeah, And you get all these kind of crazy, you know, kind of, what they call um not testimonials what's the word for them resume statements you know i'm such a, a an outstanding phenomenal citizen that you know i couldn't possibly be accused of stealing something and and those resume statements uh they're, they're huge red flags mm, interesting what do spies do after they get out of the out of the intelligence business other than write books of course 
<laughs> yeah, I was going to say, in my case, become an author. So um, the majority of them tend to go, uh, a lot of the guys at MI6 go to a company called Hackloot or they go into some kind of um, private intelligence company. There's lots of private intelligence companies now where they can work as a consultant or um, generally get paid a hell of a lot more for doing a hell of a lot less uh, in the private sector. Uh, you get some of them that, that go down the route of sales because, let's face it, if you can get somebody to commit treason in an afternoon, you can generally talk them into buying a Buick. Um, and then the other side of it is, uh, <laughs> is is they'll go down the author route and they'll they'll write fictional stories that are you know kind of um, generally a, a recap of their career, or or they'll they'll put you know a mixture of different events that they've done from experience in, into a book, hoping it will become a film or whatever the case may be. And, and again, sometimes go down the route of, of TV. You know, so you know, we were on about, um, what's it earlier? Oh, I forgot the name of the series now. <laughs> yeah, they had somebody in from, from CIA to say, look, how, how does this normally work? Teach us the trade craft so we can make this realistic. You know, so. One of my all-time favorite movies is a spy movie called Spy Game with Robert Redford. And- oh, yeah. God, I love that movie. Uh, final question. Uh, Gavin, I know in the near future you are moving out of the UK and into the United States. Eventually, yeah. When I need to buy a new car, would you come with? Certainly. No problem at all. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, Gavin is the author of How to Tell If Someone is Lying, available uh, on all your major book retailers. And his new book is called The Unforgiven Spy. And I know Rich and I have a lot more reading that uh, we have to do. Thanks. Thanks for joining us, Gavin. No problem, thank you for having me.